You're listening to Orange County's only station with critical business information, Critical Mass, with your host, Rick Ranzi. Welcome to today's episode of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. This business talk show airs live on Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Heard exclusively here on Internet Radio Station, octalkradio.net. If you're listening to this show as a podcast, we encourage you to listen live during our broadcast time. This show is brought to you by our sponsors, Succession Strategies, Commerce National Bank, Smart Business Magazine, and Smart Stop Self Storage. The goal for this show is to help you, our listening audience, to make better decisions. If you'd like to join in in the conversation today, and if you're tuning in to hear my interview with Michael Maples, principal of Truemark Homes, well, just stay tuned because he'll be with us a little later in the show. But if you are listening to us today live and you would like to participate either with Michael later in the show or with our first guest, who we'll get to in just a minute, and that is Ralph Rubio, founder of Rubio's, it's easy to join in the conversation. Simply find the community chat room section of octalkradio.net's website. There you can log in with your Twitter handle. This will connect you to our nerve center. Today, it's our engineer, Paul Roberts. He's just on the other side of the glass for me here in the studio. He'll be able to communicate with you and possibly bring your questions or observations to my attention, and I can work them into the conversation either later with Michael Maples or right now with Ralph Rubio. Ralph, welcome to Critical Mass Radio Show. Hello, Rick. How are you? I'm doing well today. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Thanks. Great. Well, I'm excited to have you on the program. Let's get started with the interview by simply asking you to talk to us a little bit, Ralph, about your professional background, sort of what we say here on the radio program, your path to Rubio's. (laughs) Well, it was... um, I I came down to San Diego in 1973 to attend San Diego State. Um, Never intending, never had a thought of going to the restaurant business, but... um, my dad, when I was very young, uh, told me that if I ever had a chance to own my own business, I should do that. And so I did come to San Diego as a student with an eye of um, um, the, getting an idea and starting my own business. And so um, I just kind of fell into the restaurant industry as a busboy. I was living in a dormitory, and my roommate uh, came home one day and said, they're hiring busboys at the old spaghetti factory. You may be familiar with them. And so uh, that was my first job in the industry, and I've been in it ever since. Uh, along the way, I discovered fish tacos down on, in Baja on spring break, probably around 1974. Fell in love with fish tacos, and as I gained more experience in, in the industry, um, uh, I, I, I was able to develop my idea. My dad is my, became my partner, my financial partner. And in 1983, after I graduated, um, a few years after I graduated from college, and um, and managed a restaurant or two. Um, we started Rubio's um, here in San Diego. And so um, not a lot of culinary experience, mostly um, management experience and, and Rubio's. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of outside experience. I kind of learned on the job, to be honest with you. Uh, very much an entrepreneurial endeavor, but uh, I guess it worked. You know? Tell us about the first Rubio's. Well, the first Rubio's, um, when I partnered up with my dad, he said, okay, let's find a restaurant. Um, I was living at Pacific Beach at the time, and, and my target was other students, college students who'd been down to Mexico eating fish tacos and drinking beers 
and maybe knew what a fish taco was. So a lot of students living in the beach area, Pacific Beach in particular, uh, we found um, a hamburger business that was for sale. It was a failing hamburger business called uh, Mickey's Burgers that had been in Orange Julius. You remember Orange, Orange Julius? Yes. And so um, we were able to buy the business, the fixtures, and uh, the remaining years on the lease for $15,000. Um, so we, my brothers and my sister were involved. We kind of put a fresh coat of paint. We hung up our sign, Rubio's Fish Tacos, and uh, we opened for business on January 25th, uh, 1983. In fact, uh, we just celebrated our 30-year anniversary uh, a few weeks ago. Congratulations. That's a definite milestone. Thank you. So yeah, tell us, uh, t- for those in the audience, because we have a global reach here since we're an Internet radio show, but maybe some people in mm-hmm. the audience aren't familiar with what's unique about Rubio's. From your perspective, from the beginning until now, what is it that makes your restaurant chain stand out? Yeah, I think, it, Rick, if there's one thing for me, it's the flavor of the food. Um, you know, I mentioned to you as a college student, um, I wasn't really a foodie or anything, but I fell in love with fish tacos. I just, um, both my parents are from Mexico, so I, I grew up around a lot of delicious Mexican food. And so I guess um, I had an appreciation for good-tasting food. And so um, when I discovered the fish taco and then introduced it in Rubio's in 1983, I always set the bar very high in terms of the flavor of the food. And and I like to be innovative. I, li- I like to be creative. And, and over the years, we, we introduced things like, uh, you know, first to market with Langostino lobster burritos, which has been a huge success. Um, inspired by my other travels in Mexico, I discovered um, some tacos uh, where I guess which we then named um, gourmet tacos, where you toast the cheese, sliced avocado, um, grilled shrimp or grilled steak uh, with some bacon. Uh, very unique, very different, but again, a lot of uh, unique flavor with the food. And I think that's what Rubio's really stands for. So really delicious, unique flavors, but mostly around Mexican seafood. You know, tacos, burritos, quesadillas, and salads. That's what Rubio's is really all about. And it's mouth-watering just to hear you describe the food. So for those of you that are listening. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and then, a lot, and then cold beer to go with it. You know, um, <laughs> you've probably been down to Mexico like I have. So, you know, you take the deli- hot, delicious food and you pair it with the cold beer, and, and that's a pretty good proposition. And so it's, that's what's made us successful. Excellent. Tell me about your guiding principle. You know, of all the things you've learned since you've been in business, building and scaling your firm, have you developed kind of an overarching belief system, what, again, we call here on Critical Mass your guiding principle, Ralph? Yeah, well, I think, I don't know that I have one per se, but, I'm. you know, people are so important, especially in the restaurant industry. We have uh, probably 4,000 team members, you know, across 195 restaurants in five states. And so I think one of the things, that um, or probably probably my, my leading principle would be this, and that's the golden rule. You know, just um, treat others as you'd want to be treated yourself and a lot of love and respect. And I told you earlier that, you know, we start out as a family business, and so a lot of those values um, uh, around family and, and the way you treat people um, has served us really well. And so, you know, that's a pretty good combination. I mean, if you inspire people and you have great people and that want to work and believe in the, the and have a passion for the mission, just like I do, um, and you combine that with great recipes, you know, that's a, that's a great recipe for success, pun intended, you know. We're going to talk about the challenges of company culture and the opportunities in a little bit. 
Uh, we need to take our first commercial break, Ralph. When we come back, I'd like you to reflect on your experiences. I mean, with Rubias. I mean, you you started the firm, you yeah. secured investors, you took it through VCs and public, and brought it back private. There's quite a history there, and I think there's a lot that the audience can learn from your direct experience. So. Can you stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen? Because when we come back, Ralph Rubio is going to take us a little bit on the journey of Rubio's. But first, let's spend a little bit of time with our sponsors. Got stuff to the right, more stuff to the left. Got enough stuff, but I can't take a step. So I smart stopped and took a minute to think. I need a little better spot, not under the sink. With Smart Stop, I leave the stress at the door. Cause it's the smarter way to store. Smart Stop bucks the system. Your first month's rent is just a buck. Your next three months are half off. Call 888-97-STORAGE and mention this station. Goodbye clutter, hello floors. Smart Stop, the smarter way to store. Can we talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children? At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation, safely and securely ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's Succession-Strategies.com. Master Radio Show, this is your host, Rick Franzi. You're listening to my interview with Ralph Rubio, founders of Rubio's. Before the break, Ralph, I said I was going to ask you to share a bit of your experience and the journey you've had with Rubio's. Yeah, Rick, um, when we started Rubio's, my dad and I, um, we knew we wanted to have more than one restaurant, but we didn't know how big it could be. Um, after about 10, 11 years, we've grown to around 12 or 13 restaurants and um, around 10 million in sales. And we wanted to grow. We needed grow capital. Uh, we were, you know, up till then we were, um, were building restaurants out of cash flow and with um, short-term debt, four-year term loans with Union Bank. And that was working out fine, but we were personally guaranteeing everything um, as a principles. And, you know, after 10 restaurants, I'd be becomes pretty onerous and so we looked at maybe franchising the business but we didn't want to go into franchising because we thought we'd have to give up too much control of the operations and we weren't comfortable with that long story short uh we just started decided to take on venture capital and so um working with rosewood capital out of san francisco who are great partners of the company um we raised nine and a half million dollars in three private rounds over the next four years this was in 1995 and then um, in 1999, May of 99, we just went public uh, at, by, with, with the um, $10 million or so that we had raised. And, and then out of cash flow, we've grown to 63 restaurants. And so um, we went public on with 63 restaurants. We raised $23 million in new capital into the business, and we grew Rubio's to become uh, almost 200 units in five states, which is where we're at now. 
And so, and then recently, uh, a little over two years ago, uh, we went private. We've been public since '99. We went public. I mean, we went private in 2011, and uh, and that's been good for us actually. With the economy, um, we slowed down our growth. Actually, stopped growing this last year. Um, and so, if you're not a growth company on um, as a publicly traded company, then it, it often doesn't make sense to be public with all the expenses and such. So. Uh, we went private uh, with no real capital um, out of uh, Connecticut. They've been great partners. And so we've been doing some things to improve the brand um, in terms of um, some uh, new uh, brand, uh, marketing brand positioning, um, some some efforts to make changes with the menu and, and uh, the entire consumer experience, including the, the ambiance, the decor, and all that. And uh, we had a very good year last year sales-wise, and so we're turning things around, and we hope to start growing again. And who knows? Maybe we'll be public again. But one, you know, public. There's. I mean, I could go on for a long time about what all is involved with being a public company. But I'll tell you that being private after being public is kind of nice because you can really focus on the business itself and the operations, and you know, you don't have one foot in dealing, you know, with Wall Street and then the other side of it trying to run the business. You know, that can really pull you in different directions. In your experience, how much time do you now have or do you, did you gain from going public to private? I mean, how much time does that take in a CEO's role dealing with the investment community in Wall Street, the press, et cetera, when you're a public firm versus private? Right. Um, I can speak to it generally because I'm currently not the CEO. Um, Mark Simons is our CEO, but um, I can tell you that it probably frees up 20 to 30% of your time. You know, where it really has an impact is on the financial side of the business. You know, Frank Hennigman, our CFO, and his team, um, they are their time is freed up immensely. I mean, because, you know, the quarters um, fly by so fast, you know, quarter to quarter and all the SEC reporting and such. Um, it just takes a lot of time and resources to keep up with all that and do it well and stay in compliance. Um, so, yeah, I would say, you know, you probably get um, well over a million dollars in annual savings in terms of G&A expense, general administrative expense, and then probably a, a 20 to 30 percent improvement for a lot of the uh, major executives like CEOs and, and the CFO who have to deal with that on a day-to-day basis. Excellent. Thank you for That's that. I, I was excited to have you on the show for a variety of reasons, and one of those is just the arc of Rubio's ownership and being able to share the different phases of it with our audience. Let, let's look inside the company now and talk about company culture. You know, with your close to 200 locations and uh, every uh, customer experience is really defined by what happens when you walk in that front door of a Rubio's. And how do you, mm-hmm. uh, as the leader and the founder, how do you make sure the company culture that you started in your first uh Pacific Beach Rubio's is still in place today and sort of it's, it's enhanced by the addition of these extra employees in, in the multiple locations. What are you doing in that area, Ralph? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, when you have 4,000 team members spread out, you know, five states, over five states, you have to try to be as high touch as possible. You know, you really can't run the business from behind the desk. So Mark Simon uh, and myself, we try to be in the field as much as possible. In fact, um, a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks now, um, we did something really cool. We had um, up in Orange County, we had a family reunion where we flew in every manager. So um, about 195 general managers, 
we, we, everyone from the corporate office down here in Carlsbad, about 60 people, we put them on a bus and drove them up there. So this is the first time we had everybody under one roof. And, um, and presentations were made, we, discussions were had, we had lunch together, and it was just a really great vibe in the room. You know, everybody was excited. Uh, a lot of people got to, to meet people in person who they'd only talk, spoken to on the phone. And so we really wanted to have a true family reunion. It's a person, you know, we've had other, um, we've had other meetings like this, but only with the managers. And this is the first time we included the entire office to really try to deliver on a family reunion sort of experience, and it was very successful. And so just trying to be in the field, communicating constantly with people, um, you know, just being involved in, uh, in, in great training. I think, you know, we, we do a good job of orientation. Our, our, gen- our managers um, go through a five-week training uh, program, um, and a lot of it is uh, involved, you know, understanding what the values um, of the company are, the culture, et cetera. Mark and myself speak to that in, in, on video and in person as much as we can. So that's basically how we do it. So will you be having family reunions in the future then, Ralph? Yes, we will. And this one was such a success. Uh, we're, we're, we, we plan on doing the exact same thing next year as well. Great. So let's turn from a successful experience to one where you learned a valuable lesson, but it maybe came from at the time what felt like a difficult or painful experience. You know, one of those business lessons that you'll never forget, Ralph, but it was born out of a time when maybe there was stress or pressure on you. Do, do you have one of those that you could share with our audience today? Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, I talk to college classes often and, and one of my one of my big life lessons and business lessons was around hubris and you know when um, when I told you about going public uh, when we went public we the, the company had come off a run about four or five years where we just had a lot of sales success the company was doing amazing things and we were a bit of a darling and then and and it kind of went to my head to be honest with you and I kind of took my eye off the ball so to speak and. Um, I was I wasn't really uh, looking over my shoulder and, and, and being cognizant of what was going on in the marketplace, and we got blindsided strategically um, around a number of things and made some mistakes, made some errors that were costly. And looking back on it now, you know, I should have been much more diligent, been much more focused, and you know, not got all caught up in all the hype and. And so um, that was a big lesson for me. And, you know, you, you hear the, the term keep it real. Well, you know, you got to keep it real and you got to be, you know, humble and you got to be focused, you know, humble and focused. And so that was a lesson for me. And, and so I, I operate, have operated differently for a long time. And, um, but as, you know, I, I didn't learn that in school. Um, I had a couple of mentors, but... That's something that was never really taught to me, and um, so if you got people. If you, there are other CEOs or, or presidents or business owners out there. You know, when 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 you are successful, you know, be careful. That's the time to really be, you know, being extra careful and and uh, and watching out what's going on. You know, that's a great one. Thank you for being candid and willing to share that with us. Let's talk about the future. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier, now being private, you have the opportunity to maybe look at you know, regenerating the, the company's growth. You're feeling good about that. Share with us what your vision for growing Rubio's is. 
Well, you know, with, with almost 200 restaurants, our, our opportunity right now is to grow sales in these existing stores. And so our opportunity, as I mentioned earlier, is to continue to um, evolve the menu. Um, we've, we've gone from our beer battered fish taco, which is our signature product and, and the one I fell in love with, you know, as a college student and is still our number one seller, um, to a, um, a whole line of grilled seafood tacos like mahi-mahi habanero, um, um, grilled fish, a salsa verde, um, shrimp taco. I told you about the grilled gourmet taco line that we have. We just recently introduced blackened tilapia. And so we're doing a lot of very innovative and creative things around um, seafood tacos beyond the original fish taco. Um, and then we're uh, looking to revamp our salad lineup, um, introduce some new burritos like a shrimp and chorizo burrito that I've been working on in the kitchen. So, yeah, there's a lot of exciting things good. going on <laughs> with the food to just continue to extend our success there. And we're also looking at some new restaurant designs, you know, to do something a little more um, current, um, a little more modern, um, just to, to really uh, raise the bar aesthetically on what's going on in the restaurants. We, we've, been, um, we've been using paper service for the longest time. Uh, we are now going to plates and silverware, you know, to mm-hmm. elevate the presentation of the food. And so we've had a lot of success with that. We just recently introduced um, craft beers into the restaurants um, down here. In, and we try to localize. We try to go local brewery. So here in San Diego, um, you've probably heard of, of Stone Brewery, um, Stone Pale Ale and such. And so along with the Mexican beer that we serve, Coronas, Pacificos, you can get Stone Beer at Rubio. So we're doing a lot of things around beverages, um, possibly adding a sangria to our menu, um, which would uh, work nicely at dinner. Uh, people ask for wine. We just have beer. Um, so that could that could be um, a good place. So we're testing and trying a lot of new things to just make the, the consumer experience at Rubio's even more interesting and better. I liked everything you just said. I am excited <laughs> for all of that. And the shrimp and chorizo yeah, sounds like you. a home run. I love chorizo, and that combination oh, yeah. sounds like oh, a really good. I do, really too. I make it at home good. all the time. So. Yeah. Man, I like the way you think. I love entrepreneurs, and I'm not a foodie either, but everything you said continues to uh, – I get a physical reaction when you're talking, and it's one of salivating, so that's a good sign. How does someone learn more well, about well, Rubio's yeah, and yeah, maybe yeah, find yeah. a location in their area if by chance they're not aware of where the closest one is? How, how do they do all that, Ralph? Well, the easiest thing to do, Rick, is just to go to rubios.com. Um, we've got a great website, and there's all sorts of – Great information, then you can even join our beach club. And if you do that, you know, just give us a little information, and then uh, we send you offers. Um, you get to try products ahead of their rollout. So um, a, lot, a lot of times, I'll do tastings in neighborhoods where we invite people in a few days before we actually introduce the product uh, to the public, and you can have it, uh, try it firsthand, and I'll t- I'll demonstrate it and talk to you about it. So yeah, there's uh, there's go to rubios.com. There's a lot of great things on the website. Thank you for going to school in San Diego and taking a trip to Mexico and bringing back a, 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 what has become a very popular uh, item here in, in Southern California and other parts of the country. I appreciate what you've done for uh, the people that you employ and the brand across the country. I um, want to thank you for being a friend of the program and, and appreciate the time that you've given us here today on Critical Mass. Thanks, Ralph. Well, Rick, you're welcome, and thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. All right. 
I appreciate it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that okay. is Ralph. That was Ralph Rubio, founder of Rubio's. I'm sure you've been the one if they're in your neighborhood. If you haven't, I can't encourage you strongly enough to take the family there. Uh, enjoy the food and the people. They hire very well. My experience with the field staff, which is why I wanted to talk to Ralph about cultures, I'm really impressed with the, the quality of the people that work here in South Orange County where I frequent and um, I've gotten stories from others that Rubio Rubio's has very high standards with the people that they hire. So along with the great food, great people, good combination. And Ralph talked about that. So we're going to take our second commercial break. And before we get to our second guest today, who is Michael Maples, we have a special feature, a spotlight guest. Yes. A spotlight guest, Rachel Owens of succession strategies is going to join us for a few minutes. But first, let's spend a little bit of time with our sponsors. My company made the switch to Commerce National Bank about six months ago. Our relationship officer was there every step of the way to make the transition as seamless as possible. We had an early hiccup with a deposit scanner, but they dropped everything and drove right to our offices to help. We couldn't feel better about our decision to switch. Instead of calling an 800 number and navigating through automated menus... Now I call my Commerce National Bank Relationship Officer directly for any questions we have. Just knowing that they're so easily accessible and willing to help really puts me at ease. They offer the same technology as the big banks, but deliver it with superior service and training. They're also rated a full five stars by Bauer Financial. So if your organization is a small or medium-sized business in Orange County, you should make the switch too. Call Mary Miller, Senior Vice President, at 949-870-3863. Or visit them online at www.commercenatbank.com. That's commercenatbank.com. Give Commerce National a chance to do better than your bank, and they'll handle the rest. If you are an Orange County business executive, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitments in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have these questions, then Critical Mass for Business might be the answer for you. Critical Mass for Business is committed to helping you make better decisions. These are groups of peers running businesses just like you, providing a great sounding board to test ideas and concepts, review plan and goals, and present issues and opportunities for discussion. The result is improved strategy, accountability, people, and execution skills. If you are interested in learning more, go to www.criticalmassforbusiness.com and learn more about our executive peer group. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. And before we get to our second featured guest today, which is Michael Maples, who's principal with Truemark Homes, uh, we're inserting a new segment here on Critical Mass Radio Show. We're calling this a spotlight guest. And today's spotlight guest, and she will be back in the future, is Rachel Owens of Succession Strategies. I've asked Rachel to join us because, as you know, February's topic is entrepreneurship in in the beginning. And Rachel's company, Succession Strategies, works with a lot of family-owned businesses on 
moving their business to the next generation of leaders. And so I thought, you know, it might be fun to talk with her from her perspective about contingency planning so that you early on entrepreneurs in early stage companies can also think about the future and what's going to happen later. So let me just welcome to the program, a good friend of the program, Rachel Owens. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you, Rick. I do appreciate it. So let's talk about contingency planning for you know many new entrepreneurs that start a new venture with their own capital. Can, can you share maybe just off the top of your head or from your direct experience, you and Bill working with family-owned businesses, what are some things that they should think about and, and plan for? Well, I think the number one thing when we talk with a new entrepreneur is really to define just how much of the family's capital they're willing to put at risk of as you know, very often someone has a fabulous idea or they're good at something special and they jump in with both feet and commit the family assets, um, their savings or their retirement account, without giving a whole lot of thought sometimes to some of the contingency what-if kinds of things. So we like to have a conversation with that new entrepreneur of just what's the top and what's the bottom. And when you talk about the bottom, how much are you willing to risk? Yeah, that's important because my experience being an entrepreneur, things unfortunately seem to take twice as long and cost twice as much as you expect them to when you're doing your planning. So I think that's a very good place to start with someone, how much they're willing to risk for the business. Anything else? Um, certainly. They need to define what their structure is going to be. So many start as a sole proprietor, but possibly, again, that's putting family assets at risk and they're loath to talk to an attorney and get that structure in place, but, boy, it sure can help in the long run should things go in a direction that you don't really want them to. We also like to see a written contingency plan. If nothing else, um, the family members who are not in the business, wife, other family members, need to know who to contact in the event of any kind of an emergency, um, important customers, vendors, who could assist? I mean, these are just fundamental issues of, of being prepared for all contingencies. You know, you, you talk about um, the, or, uh, the structure of the company, and sometimes it's penny-wise and pound-foolish because it's cheapest and easiest to be a sole proprietor, but it may not be the wisest decision even in the early stage of a company, isn't it? it it's very, very true. And if you've got a partner or another family, even another family member, a brother, a cousin, a father in place with you, having a more formal agreement, and particularly a buy-sell agreement, can be very important. It's, it's easier to, to make decisions and to agree to agree when we're all excited and all on the same page. It's when those things that can sometimes go wrong having that buy-sell agreement and having some um, insurance funding to it can be quite important for everyone's protection. So, Rachel, if someone, thank you for those five tips. If someone would like to learn more and maybe benefit from your experience, you and Bill's experience and advice, how do they get in touch with you? How do they find you online? Well, our website is www.succession-strategies.com. And I personally can be reached at rachel at succession-strategies.com. Well, we're Rachel, glad I'm sorry, to, Rachel. We're glad to you know, provide a little bit of information and, and be a resource for folks. I appreciate you being our spotlight guest here today on Critical Mass Radio Show. Thank you for your time. It's nice talking with you again, and we'll have you on again next month. Sounds great.
great. Rick, appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks. Rachel Owens, ladies and gentlemen, with Succession Strategies, giving you five things to think about uh, as an entrepreneur. All right, let's get to our our second featured guest on the program today. As I said at the top of the show, it's my, he is Michael Maples, and he's principal with Truemark Homes. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks. Glad to be with you. It's our pleasure to have you, my friend. Let's talk a little bit about your professional experience. Give us a little bit of your background. Well, um, you know, I went to uh, major in business, but also have another part of my life that uh, really kind of oriented spiritually. So I decided to do a Master's of Divinity um, in the Midwest, a four-year uh, master's program, and uh, worked in some churches, running some large youth ministries in the San Francisco Bay Area. And... Um, one thing led to another, and a friend and I started uh, a company in 1988 called Trumark Companies, which still continues. It was what we used to start Trumark Homes with, uh, doing primarily uh, infill land um, development in all the hard-to-get-approved areas of northern and southern California. Uh, so we'd go in and plan the neighborhoods, get the approval through city council, usually on a discretionary approval, and uh, sell it off to the nationwide builders. And um, in 96, we saw some changes in the marketplace and added a commercial company along with our residential land company. And uh, that continues to operate in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then in 2008, after 15 years of kind of keeping it on the back burner, we started Trumark Homes um, to take advantage of this crazy marketplace we've had. So, so let's talk about that. You, you had a strategy of buying land during the recession when others were probably wanting to get rid of whatever holdings they had if they thought they could. Tell me about how your firm, how you made that decision, and now looking back on here in you know, 2013, what was the outcome of that decision at the time, and how does, how does it benefit Trumark Homes today? Yes, yeah, so um, in 2008, uh, my business partner and I uh, decided, you know, this is time to start the home building company. Fifteen years earlier, we had sketched out a business plan on the back of a napkin for a home building company, but our premise was that it had to, you had to start one in a major downturn because you had great access to leadership, um, people that were losing jobs. Uh, you had loyalty from trade contractors you couldn't get during a boom time. Uh, you were going to be buying de- depressed assets, and then you would eventually ride the recovery of appreciation out of the cycle. So we almost started in, in 2000 when the dot-com um, blow-up happened in the Bay Area. We interviewed guys, and then all of a sudden the Fed lowered interest rates, and the market took off, and we delayed again. And then in 2008, we said, you know, this is it. And so uh, we um, hired some guys and started uh, Trumark Homes. That was May of 08. It took till May of 09 to find the, find the first deal that actually penciled. Um, and then since then, we've been buying land. Um, we've bought, you know, over probably over 2,500 lots, um, many of which we've sold off uh, since then. Uh, but we maintain a pipeline of over 1,800 lots. That would be a, you know, a revenue stream eventually of about 1.1 billion dollars if we built it all out. So buying during that that crazy time was a, a great time to buy. Speaking of crazy, did anyone in the industry or anyone look at you and say? Do you really know what you're doing, Michael? Well, they still do that. But, <laughs> but at the time, pretty much everybody said, what are you doing starting a home building company? And you kind of explain, well, this is the best time because you're, you're, buying, you're starting at the bottom and, and there's going to be a new landscape of home building companies when we come out of this. 
And sometimes they would get it. Most of the time they kind of go, you know, that seems like a pretty stupid idea to me. But we just felt like the whole landscape of home building industry was going to change because this uh, real estate recession kept getting more and more severe. Uh, So it proved to just be a great opportunity for us. I have to ask you, you you built the the business plan around the requirement for a recession. Uh, you got the greatest recession that we've ever had in you know in our in our business life, and maybe since the Great Depression. Did the assumptions that you and your partner had about when you built the business plan did you see them come true as you worked to build Truemark Homes? You know the um, the recession was definitely more severe than we thought, and you're correct. It is the worst since the Great Depression. And I keep telling all the younger people that work for us, this is the greatest opportunity you may ever see in your life. It's certainly the greatest one I've ever seen in my life because the correction has been so significant and so deep. But it also means that people's affordability is at a, 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 the best it's been in, you know, in over decades, and so this recovery can be amazing. Um, so I would say that what was surprising to us was that we thought it would go down you know, 10%, and it went down 25 or more percent. We thought it would last you know, maybe maybe 24 to 36 months, and it lasted, you know, really from us in the industry, almost five years, really. Uh, so it was deeper and longer than we thought. It also, the construction lending market was more paralyzed than we thought it was going to be. So it was, it was deeper than we thought, longer, but it also means that the recovery is going to be, I think, better than we thought it was going to be also. Yeah, I, I, think the, I think that is the case, that out of the depths the rebound can take you further, faster, farther. I think we're we're not seeing that yet here, but I I do think um, there's a lot of opportunity. At least there's potential, a lot of potential for upside that maybe we haven't seen in a long time either. And let's let's hope that that is the case, Michael. We're gonna we're gonna take our third and final commercial break here on Critical Mass Radio Show. And, and Michael, when we come back, I'm wondering if if you could share with our audience. I found it fascinating when when we met earlier. And you were sharing how Truemark Homes creates communities that reflect your company's culture. I'd, I'd like you to share a bit with our audience about why you do that and sort of how you do that, okay? Sure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned. It's a fascinating conversation we're having with Michael Maples today here on Truemark Homes, here on Critical Mass, a radio show from Truemark Homes, excuse me. But we're going to be right back after these words from our sponsors multimedia company providing insight, advice, and strategy for C-level executives of fast growth, middle market, and large companies. As one of the nation's largest publishers of local management journals, under the Smart Business name, Smart Business Network publishes 19 regional print editions, presents dozens of large and small-scale business conferences and award programs, and produces a vibrant interactive digital media presence. For more information, visit us at www.sbnonline.com. This is the sound of a flat-screen television hurled off a building. Now the new bike your kid wants. These are the things you could have all cast into oblivion. Because when you throw away money on wasted electricity, you throw away everything you could have bought with it. Use Energy Star light bulbs and appliances, and you could save hundreds of dollars a year. Saving energy saves you money. Learn more at energysavers.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. You know, this show is one of our Critical Mass Radio Show series. On Wednesdays, we air our show featuring Orange County and Southern California nonprofit organizations and their leaders. On Thursdays at 3 p.m., our nationally syndicated show, Critical Mass Coast to Coast, features small and mid-market business leaders from across the country. All of our shows can be heard live here on Internet radio station octalkradio.net or rebroadcast anytime from iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcasting services. All of our shows as well can be found from our website, criticalmass4forbusiness.com. All right, let's turn, let's return to our interview with Michael Maples, principal of Truemark Homes. Before the break, I said I was going to ask you to share a little bit about how you create your communities that reflect your company's culture. Could you give our audience some insight into that topic, please? Yeah, one of the things about home building is that now's our chance to kind of execute. You know, when we were doing just land, we had to sell it off to a nationwide builder, and, and they would take what we had planned, and they would, you know, tweak it the way they wanted. And we always thought, you know, there's part of you always thinks, man, we could have done a better job than they did. So when we started the home building company, we said, what is it that we think is going to make great neighborhoods that are sustainable, great communities? And we build, by the way, not only in, in, in Southern California, but the San Francisco Bay Area, and now we have a significant pipeline in downtown San Francisco, which we're doing mid and, mid and high rise. So, you know, how does how do you create a community in these different settings that's meaningful? And uh, I recently, at that time, I'd recently traveled uh, to northern Kenya and spent some time um, amongst the Samburu people, which are a nomadic tribe. And uh, that means they move their houses about every six weeks to different water sources. They often have to walk long ways to water. They're often hungry. Um, and they live in things that we don't consider great houses. And yet there's this great sense of community amongst them. And there's, they're always smiling. And you go, what is it that makes their environment great? And so we kind of reflected on that and came up with three things we're trying to do in every community that we saw kind of really in this northern Kenyan tribe. And that's a place to gather, a place to dream, and a place to call home. So if we, have, we try to really work hard at place, creating places to gather because the Samburu people, they may not have much, but the fireplace at night, the fire um, pit rather, is a place where storytelling and, and community is built and people begin to care for each other's needs. And that's kind of the glue behind the neighborhoods, um, even though the neighborhood changes every six weeks. So we are taking a lot of time in these pocket parks and these kind of dense developments that we're doing to make sure that whether it's on the uh, – a park, I mean, a, yeah, an open space on the top of a high rise or a pocket park amongst townhouses that we do such a great job that people want to go there and it, it, it's captivating. And there it creates places for community to happen where neighbors meet each other and they interact and then they begin to care for each other. And we're working very hard at making those just captivating things like, like the little pocket parks, parks you find in downtown New York or in, in Europe where they're not huge, but they're so good that people want to spend time there. So, um, we just think that creating a place to gather in a community really helps stimulate a community and makes it, you know, sustainable. And then we also think there's there's value to have people have time of reflection or dreaming. So the Samburu people, they have they don't have much, but they they're in these beautiful places that they live, and they're they have time watching their you know flocks and looking out of the vistas, and there's times to reflect. And when we reflect as people, we're better people. So we're trying to create a, a place in every neighborhood where there is a place to dream or reflect. And so at uh, one, our Wyeth Cove project, there was a bench that looked out towards the mountains. At Granada Hills, it was a bench that looked out over the valley. But you don't always have those vistas. So now what we're doing is we're creating a, 
a fountain in every neighborhood that creates a natural place for people to think and reflect. Because when we reflect, we become better people. We decide to, our best ideas come from times of reflection. Maybe it's an idea for work or an idea for something that might help the community. Or maybe it's there that you kind of think, man, I should forgive that person I'm bitter um, towards. But it, those things happen in times of reflection. So we're creating these, uh, these, uh, these fountains. And every 50 houses we build, we're also drilling a well in another country. And by the fountain will be a plaque describing the, the location of the well that's in a, a different third world country. And so there, this place of reflection will also be a place that reminds you that there, there's a bigger picture in life and a bigger war, world in which we live. So a uh, place to gather, place to dream. And then these crazy uh, Samburu people, they live in these little huts you can't even stand up in because they move them every six weeks. But when they crawl in there at night, there's this great sense that it's their home. And it's a place of security, a place where great conversations have, a great place where parents mentor kids. And so we thought we need to develop um, homes that people find works for their lives. So what are the creative ways that we need to change architecture and floor plans that enhance the lives that people are going to live? When they walk in the door, there's kind of this sigh like, I'm home now. So anyway, that's our way that we think we can make great communities, a place to gather, a place to dream and a place to call home. That's very powerful. And you also showed me when I visited at your offices that you've also sort of laid out your professional offices in a similar concept as well, right, Michael? Yes, that's where we're probably different as a company. We're probably, um, you know, my partner and I both grew up in the Silicon Valley. Our company is much more like a Silicon Valley company than we are a home builder. It's a place of creativity and problem solving. So, you know, we created the, this kind of gathering spot in the middle of our offices. We have uh, walls you can write on in the conference room that are it's made for interaction and problem solving. Uh, we're less like a production factory, more like uh, what's the new way for a land plan or a new way people are going to live or where's a new concept we need to engage in. And so we've tried to lay, up our, uh, lay out our offices as more of a collaborative kind of environment, much like we're seeing in Silicon Valley. Excellent. Talk to us about the future. Where do you see the growth coming from? from for your firms and when we have you back on at some point in the future what's going to be different with the Truemark brands and Truemark homes and the companies that you're leading well I think that the the world is definitely going to change significantly we have these two demographic bubbles that we are following right Uh, there's the the baby boom you know 78 million strong that started turning 65 uh, you know in the beginning of 2012 and we have the Echo Boom, 89 million strong, who started turning 30 last year. They are going to change everything about housing because what they want for their future housing is different than what they've had in the past. And that creates all kinds of unique opportunities. So you have the baby boomers moving down, looking for a different environment. They're going to retire differently. They're going to work longer. They might do a semi-retired thing. They might have a place in the desert, but also a place uh, in more of an urban setting. And then the echo boom, we're kind of fascinated how much they like the cities. Um, and that's kind of what led us to uh, starting to develop in downtown San Francisco because there we're finding the merging of both those groups. There are baby boomers that are moving down and like that neighborhood experience that the cities provide. And the echo boom is going to this, the, these urban centers in mass numbers. They like the ability to walk to other off-site amenities, restaurants, and other services. They like even to take public transportation to their jobs, which I know we in Southern California can't believe, but we're beginning to see it even in neighborhoods like Colonel Del Mar, 
um, or certain parts of L.A. or parts of Hollywood where people are looking more for a walkable um, experience in their houses rather than driving way out to the suburbs and living in a uh, you know, gated community apart from everybody else. And well, anyway, we think that those two demographic bubbles are going to shape a lot of the way the future housing goes. That's interesting, and it does bring me back to a question that I did want to ask you. Thanks for opening that door. Picking downtown San Francisco to develop has got to be a pretty gutsy move. I, I, I don't know the market there, but I sort of have a sense for San Francisco. I've certainly been there as a tourist and a vacationer and on business travel. It just seems like you've really given yourselves what may be a great opportunity, but must come with a certain amount of challenges doing it in downtown San Francisco. Is that a fair assessment, Michael? Well, we'll we see that it'll happen also in L.A. and San Diego. They're just further behind the cycles. But what we saw in San Francisco, because we have a commercial company um, in Silicon Valley, we began to see more and more of the startups gravitate to downtown San Francisco rather than the traditional parts of Silicon Valley. And the young workforce loves downtown San Francisco. So that means the Googles and the Yahoos and, um, and the Apples actually send buses every single morning to downtown San Francisco to pick up their employees in downtown because their employees don't want to live down in traditional Silicon Valley. And they provide these buses with espressos, a service on the bus, and free Wi-Fi, and they bring their employees down to uh, the suburbs, and they bring them back to San Francisco in the evening. Um, and because of that, the rental rates in San Francisco have gone up over 14% last year. Appreciation on, um, on new home sales, they say, will be 1% per month this next year. There is almost zero supply of for-sale housing in downtown San Francisco. So anyway, there's this convergence of the baby boomers and the echo boomers both moving to San Francisco. We're also seeing that happen, the inventory in San Diego and L.A. of downtown uh, mid- and high-rise condos is shrinking incredibly fast, and that eventually will push the price points up high enough to be able to do mid- and high-rise in those urban cores as well. Wow, that's interesting. It's sort of, uh, it took several generations, but we're coming back to the cities out of the suburbs is what I'm hearing you say. That is fascinating. And that's one of those teachable moments, ladies and gentlemen. That's why we do this show here at Critical Mass. Michael, if someone would like to learn more about you and Truemark Homes, how do they find you online? Uh, the best thing is to, my email is uh, mmaples at Truemark, T-R-U-M-A-R-K-C-O.com. And uh, TrueMarkHomes.com is our website. Thank you for being a friend of the program. I appreciate you giving of your time and sharing a bit of what you know. And it's fascinating. I really appreciate you being a guest on our program today. Thanks so much. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode of Critical Mass Radio Show is in the books, as they say. I hope you've enjoyed our show and the three guests that we had on the program. And something from each might give you ideas that help you make better decisions. I would like to thank our sponsors, Smart Business Magazine, Succession Strategies, Commerce National Bank, and Smart Stop Self Storage. Our engineer, as I said earlier for today's show, was Paul Roberts. Our producer is Rachel Franzi. Kelly Faltus is our communications manager, and Kathleen Shepard is our guest coordinator. I'm your host, Rick Franzi. If you'd like to learn more about Critical Mass for Business, visit our site, our website, criticalmass4forbusiness.com. And until the next time we have a chance to talk, here's hoping that all of your decisions move your company in a positive direction.
You've been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show right here on octalkradio.net.